If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to... Je- no? No? Go to Luke 24. We are turning to Luke 24. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for your precious word. And uh, thank you for PCBC, Lord God, and uh, the marvelous sound of Bible pages this morning, Father. Um, we, we want to hear from you, uh, not from Dan, not from some man or some teacher on this planet. Father, we, we wish to understand your word in a better way, and I pray that this morning would be a blessing and an encouragement to PCBC. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, let me just say this before we jump in. The first half of this message is material that I have brought to you before, and is material that is of necessity uh, to go where I want to go this morning. And the elders informed me, I didn't know this, apparently everybody here, you don't remember everything I said, ever. (laughs) So, safe bet, here we go. Um, Talking about biblical typology this morning. Biblical typology is what I want to speak about, but particularly in reference to Joseph. Um, As if you are not a visitor, or if you've been somebody who's been coming here, or a regular tender of this church, You know, we've been working through the book of Genesis, particularly the life of Joseph. 19 parts. Um, Now, there's some of you struggling with the fact that it wasn't 20, but 19 parts. And as I've been working through that, I have not pointed out what I would consider obvious arrows pointing to Jesus uh, in the life of Joseph. And it's because I I wanted to spend just a little time speaking directly to that in in this message. Um, So you may ask that question, Dan, what's typology? Well, go to Luke 24, as you have, and look at verse 24. 24, 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as exactly as the women also said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now 27 is your key. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Moses being the first five books and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself. If you underline in your Bible that word himself, in all the scriptures, in all of the scriptures. Now, if you look down at verse 32, it says, and they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while we were, while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us. So, there's a piece in this, in this message 
uh, or in this, yeah, basically this message Jesus gave on the road to Emmaus to these two disciples, where he opened up all the scriptures. And what else could you have put there? He showed us from all the scriptures the history of Israel. That'd be, that'd be true, right? Yeah. As you, as you go through the book of the first five books of Moses and the prophets, that'd be true. But it's not what he said. As he opened up the scriptures, all the things concerning the fallenness of man. True. Adam and Eve and the, the foundations of the world, all these things. It's fascinating just to stop for a second, you guys, and think about what could you put in place of that. And there's lots of things that are secondary that you could put in there. But Jesus didn't say that. Of first importance, number one in Jesus' mind was he opened up all the things from all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, that's like a, I'm kind of putting a key in your hand to open up the door of the Bible. And I'm, if you know that, I hope you know that. If you don't, there it is. I believe that the key that opens the Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ. Dan, on what basis could you say that? He said it. Jesus said it. But I could make a stronger case, or at least add to that case, I would also argue... Look at all the New Testament teaching, and you will see over and over again, particularly in the Pauline epistles and Peter's writings, you will see them take an Old Testament picture or passage and point to Jesus Christ with that passage. Um, you will see the glory and exaltation of Jesus Christ throughout your entire New Testament, as well as the pointing back to the glory of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. This is not um, somebody trying to make this happen or, or fussing with the text in order to end with your result. This was the hermeneutical principle held by Jesus Christ and held by the apostles, held by the New Testament authors. This was their hermeneutical principle of how, is the, how does this text relate to Jesus. I'm not uncomfortable in the least to say that I hold to a Christocentric hermeneutic when I interpret the Scripture a Christ-centered Bible study method when I search the Word. On what basis? On the basis of the inspired New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament, which is the Lord Jesus and the New Testament authors. Are there other things in there that are secondary? Of course there is. But first and foremost, I believe it is a Christ-centered book. Now what's kind of cool about that, you guys, is that that directs our attention to the inspiration of Scripture. Because we got 66 books, right? We just worked through Genesis, a separate unit, a book, all by itself. And now we're going to start Romans, right? A separate book, all by itself. And it's a, I get it, it's a Sunday school kind of question, but what connections could you make between Genesis and Romans? I would hope a lot. Because there's a massive connection between those two books. The Apostle Paul quotes consistently about Abraham throughout the book of Romans to make his very case in that book. My point being, we hold to many different authors under one author. The inspiration of Scripture that there are human authors with their personalities, with their historical context, writing. But under that, or over that rather, is the superintending of God to have his one book. 
So you go, so is it 66 or is it 1? Answer? Yep. <clears throat> yep, it is. It's both. Um, because you can look at each book as a unit. We do that, right? I preach books of the Bible. That's, that's, what, I, that's what I love to do. That's what we do. But as you walk through and work through all of the Bible, you see absolute um, crystal clear continuity of the whole. I would say there are many tiny narratives with a massive uh, meta-narrative, a big narrative that covers the whole thing. So you would see a, a smaller narrative such as um, maybe the relationship between David and Jonathan, or you see the relationship between uh, what happens with him and Bathsheba, some things that may be smaller within a smaller context, but then you say, but what is that larger context that is in the line of David? And you start seeing that there's, there's this grand scope of seeing all of redemptive history and seeing all of the Bible's unity. Typology really is at the, at the heart of that. When you come to the New Testament and you see the New Testament authors and the Lord Jesus himself specifically point from an Old Testament text to a New Testament reality. Now, here's the, here's the part that is... <clears throat> here's the part that's tricky. The physical in the Old Testament is not the ultimate reality. The spiritual is the ultimate reality. I hate to break this to you. You will not be on this planet forever. So, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the place where God's people at that time went to gather to meet with God is no longer of necessity. The Lord Jesus Christ is where we go to meet God. In John chapter 1, it says that He came and dwelt among us. He came and tabernacled amongst us. My connection to Almighty God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that tabernacle was a picture of that glorious reality. That tabernacle was a picture of that glorious reality. You remember when um, the Lord was bringing uh, Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I want you to take the blood and I want you to put over the doorpost. So the angel of death will pass over and, and you will not be killed. Your, your, your children, your firstborn will not be killed. Again, blood, lamb, all of this sacrificial type language all comes to the New Testament. And the New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, points directly to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. The physical reality finds its um, fulfillment in the spiritual reality. So, two main pieces to typology. Old Testament person, place, or thing, or occurrence that prefigures a New Testament reality. The Old Testament piece is a real thing that really existed, okay? A real person, Melchizedek. A real place, the tabernacle. A real thing, the rock in the wilderness. A real event, the Passover. So whether it's person, place, thing, or event, these are true things that have a historical context back then. But we come to the New Testament, and the New Testament authors unflinchingly say that had a far greater purpose than just the purpose of that immediate context. 
It was pointing to something far grander, far, far grander. So the type is that person, place, thing, event. The antitype, and anti here does not mean uh, against, it means rather than, it's the fulfillment of, the New Testament reality that the Old Testament portion pointed to. Now here's a, a very important line, okay? The type in the old is inferior to the antitype in the new. The antitype is the end game. Once you have the antitype, you don't return to the type. The type is the shadow to the antitype, which is the substance. That's hard for people. That's why it's, it's, uh, it's difficult when people want to go back and fight about the Sabbath. They want to fight about dietary laws in the Old Testament Scripture and some of these things. And they want to return to the shadow and skip the substance. So, Dan Mason's walking down the beach. The sun's shining on Dan. There's Dan's shadow. Benjamin's running towards Dan. And he runs, and I'm, I've got my arms on like, Benji, come on, come on. Now he's, he's big, so he's going to take me down as soon as he gets there. But I'm going, Benji, come on, come on. <clears throat> and he runs, and he just wraps his arm around my shadow. Falls to the ground. Looks kind of silly, right? And we go, what are you doing? I just love the shadow. I love Dad's shadow. Ridiculous illustration. Yes, it is. And yet, how often do folks want to go to the type because Jesus doesn't satisfy? They want the physical. They want that old feeling of their works righteousness or, or whatever. Fill in the blank there. And they struggle with that. But the New Testament author comes and says, oh, we have such a much better thing which the author of Hebrews says that over and over, giving different pieces, saying, but now we have something that's even better, something that's even better. Remember Jesus himself said, but now something better is in front of you. Christ is the answer to that. This was the struggle in Galatia, the Galatian heresy, where they said, okay, faith in Christ, sure, but we still need, need to be obedient to the law. We still need to take the sign of circumcision. We still need to obey the law. And we'll match that with the righteousness of Jesus. And that will be pleasing to the Father. Paul's answer to that thought process. Hell. That's his answer to that. You mingle the gospel. You ruin the gospel. There's no, there's no impurity in that. And so that's why he's so strong to say, even if an angel from heaven comes and preaches a different gospel unto you than the one we've preached, let him be accursed. Because the Galatians were gripping for the shadow when they had the substance. They neglected Christ and faith in Christ because they wanted all of their fancy doodads physically, which were pointing to Christ. <clears throat> so, here's a couple passages that I want you to look at with me. Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to do sword drills for just a sec, okay? So, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Colossians 2, 16. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, 
no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are only a shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You imagine just the weight that would be lifted off their shoulders to read that letter and to read that where they have these people who are just hammering them with, no, no, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, and these things are still a part of your spiritual life in order for you to be justified. And Paul says, don't let anybody judge you on, those, on that merit, on that basis. Those were pointing to the substance. You have the substance. Christ is the substance. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly thing. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. There in reference, the, the contrast between the Mosaic covenant, covenant of the law, and the covenant here, the new covenant under Christ, he's saying there's no reason for that if the law was able to justify. And it was never intended to do that. And so as he erected that tabernacle, he's saying that's a mere shadow. It's pointing to something far greater, far, far greater. Uh, look at 10.1 in Hebrews. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, listen to this, beloved, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And the context of chapter 10 as he moves further into that is that there is absolutely no way of being made perfect by a sacrifice unless it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That was pointing to him. You have the substance. What are you doing grabbing for the shadow? Seeing the type and the antitype is not man's design but God's. Now, let me say this real quick, you guys. This morning, um, all I'm attempting is just to give you uh, just a taste of this concept, okay? Because my desire would be you'd go to the Scripture. You'd search the Scripture for yourself, and you would look to see 
how does this passage make reference to the Lord Jesus? Where's Christ here? Where's Christ in my Old Testament? I remember one man asked me one time, he said, I'm not sure why you keep talking about Jesus. You're in Genesis. And all, all that pointed was he, he had not seen the connection between the two. That God has a purpose and a plan since day one, and he's, he's pointing towards Christ. Remember, just a, for me, my pea brain, it's simple for me to remember, the Old Testament's pointing back, or pointing forward to the Lord Jesus. Then you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is Christ comes. Then you have um, the rest of the New Testament, except for Revelation, pointing uh, back to Christ's coming, explaining all that he ever taught. Remember, that's part of our commission, teaching them to observe all that I've ever commanded you. And then Revelation unfolding some of what has taken place as well as his coming back. And if you, you see your Bible like that, for me, I tried to put a basketball hoop together one time. It wasn't good. Because <clears throat> there was no box picture. I need it. I need to see the box top. If, if somebody, my, Amber really likes puzzles, and I, I don't like, I hate puzzles. <laughs> and, and if somebody gave her a puzzle, she would, she'd probably like the challenge of um, no box top. Like, that'd be, oh, well, game on. I, I'd go play guitar. Um, you know, that's good for, good for her. Um, th there's a box top category here, guys, where um, when we see the, the big blocks of Scripture, it's helpful, helpful to us to be able to map out and, and track through the Word of God. So you're reading in Amos, and you go, I'm just... I'm on a desert island, or I'm on, a, I'm on an island there. I don't know, how does this fit in with anything? That's where that box top can be a great blessing, when you go, okay, so here's the Old Testament, and it's moving towards the coming of the Lord Jesus, and he's working with this people, Israel. And you ask some of those big pieces, they are so helpful grasping some of the small pieces. Because I know there are times when you are, you're working hard to read your Bible, leather to leather, and in doing that, you go, I'm not sure if this is a name or a place. <laughs> I'm wrestling with it. I know. I, I, I've been there. Um, but some of those larger pieces are extremely helpful for us. Now, let me say this because it needs to be said because historically there's a massive uh, quicksand uh, batch here. Biblical typology is very different than the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. The allegorical interpretation of Scripture where the historical things in the Old Testament were not truly historical. They're just mere allegories that were given to bring to a spiritual reality. So there are folks who argue today that Adam is not a historical figure. He's not a real person. Um, he was just a, an, a, an, an allegory of what we should be learning. Or with Nehemiah as they're building the wall. There was no wall. There was no Nehemiah. This is not a historical context. That's just a picture, and we've got to figure out how spiritually it, it, what it means to us today. Um, I, don't, I don't hold to that at all, and yet you see some of that in the history of the church, and I would just warn you, be very, very careful. 
if you do not have a good grasp on the historical context to start asking questions about how this applies to Christ. Go historical context first. It will bless you. Because there's much there that needs to be seen. The Old Testament portions are true history, not some made-up story with spiritual meanings hidden in the cracks. Adam and Eve were real people that really existed, and they really did all that is recorded. All right, we're getting to Joseph. Promise. So here's the three levels. Um, this is totally arbitrary on, on my part. Um, doesn't, you don't have to map it out this way. It's just easier for me to try to wrestle with what I'm wrestling with, okay? So I have three tiers. Tier number one is clearly explained by a New Testament author. So the priesthood. You go back with the priesthood, and you see all that is in the, the historical context of Aaron and Aaron's sons. And remember all that fascinating language about the sacrifice of the animal and the blood on their earlobe and other places as they are christening them and bringing them in to be priests of God in the Old Testament scripture. And the priests can go into the holy place, but not in, you know, into the holy of holies. And all of that image, all of that picture, was an actual practice done by God's people at that time. Then you come to the New Testament. And the New Testament authors, under the inspiration of Scripture, point to a far greater fulfillment of the priesthood, namely, that our high priest is the Lord Jesus. But also... You are a kingdom of priests, the priesthood of believers. You can go into the Holy of Holies today. What do you mean, Dan? How, how, could, I, how could I approach God on the merit of Christ? There is so much scripture. I'm, not, I'm just going to give you where this is at. This is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. Chapter 4, verse 15, and chapter 7, verses 26. In chapter 8, verse 1, it, it's just kind of, it's painted throughout that book. So chapter 3, 4, you know what, just read the book this afternoon. That'd be the best. <clears throat> but the priesthood is something that's clearly seen in the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament, clearly spoken to, obvious from what the priest says. That's tier 1. You have no qualms that the priesthood points to something far greater. Number 2, blatantly obvious in pointing to the New Testament. Um, I would take you to the sacrifice of Isaac on this. Uh, in the New Testament, you don't have a New Testament author say, now here's what that meant. Here's what it pointed to. You don't have a, a New Testament author unfolding exactly what the one-to-one -one was in that. But beloved, I just challenge you. Read through that passage where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son. You tell me how you can read that without seeing Christ where the father takes his son, his only son, the one whom he loves. And the son goes up and he says, but father, where's the lamb? God will provide the lamb. And you, I, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. it Jesus is everywhere there. But you don't have a New Testament author that specifically says this relates to that. I would say that based on the merits of what the New Testament authors do in their interpretive grid and what Jesus says in chapter 24 of Luke and in reference to him consistently pointing to himself, even the I am statements, all of that shows us, okay, so we should be reading our Old Testament scripture with an eye for something that points to Christ. 
not negating the historical context, but wondering where that large meta-narrative is hanging over those smaller narratives. And I, I, I'm just thoroughly convinced that that passage with Isaac and the, or Abraham and Isaac, Jesus is there. Number three, the third tier, remember? Boom, 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 going down. Very possibly pointing to, a new, to the New Testament reality. But be careful. That's all, I'm, that's all I say is be careful. Um, because you have nothing in the New Testament that says it, and you're saying this was the intent of God in what was, back, what was happening back there. Is that wrong? I would not say it's wrong based on what I've just said up to this point. But let us be wise. Let us be wise in how we turn over every rock in Israel and say, there he is. Well, maybe. Maybe. And lastly, the last tier is reaching. When you're reaching. Uh, when you say, actually, when Nehemiah was building the wall, the um, mortar in between the bricks was the Holy Spirit. I don't think, <laughs> okay, so you get my point. You go, that's, um, oh, what's that Hebrew word? Ludicrous. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but this is why I, I want to say, beloved, I want to be a good interpreter of Scripture. I believe this is absolutely how we should read the Word of God. But let us be careful to, for, to not force into the historical context a spiritual reality that we would love to just get in there somehow but do our best to interpret um, the Word of God. Typology can lead one down a very difficult path at times, if not checked carefully. Never push an antitype beyond its limits set by the text. Typology is not the same as allegorical interpretation in the least because we believe in a historical context that God really was accomplishing at that time with a purpose, a greater purpose that it pointed to. There really was a tabernacle. There really was a temple. There really was a people Israel. There really was all of that. And it really does have a far greater fulfillment spiritually. I mean, my goodness, you guys, read, read what the scripture says in reference to Moses and reference to Abraham in Hebrews, where they're looking for a country that is, that is not here and not, not built with man's hands, but a heavenly country, a heavenly city. And you go, wow, he's speaking about what was in the minds of these men at that time. These were not fools who had no concept of the spiritual reality. We never want to wrongly attribute something to God's word that does not exist by his design. And that's, that's where I... I, um, I wish to be a good, careful Bible teacher is I never want to say, thus says the Lord, and the Lord's going, Dan, I, I didn't. I didn't say that. I didn't mean for that. I don't want to attach his name on there if it's not there. But I'm convinced, beloved, this is God's marvelous design showing us the magnificent unity of Scripture and the magnificent design of the plan of redemption. And what it does for me personally in the study of typology is I find myself caught up in worship. 
at the precision of my Lord. When, when you say, uh, or rather, when you come to the New Testament and you see a New Testament author quote an Old Testament passage, I, I had in my mind growing up the concept that he merely looked for something that would fit, he grabs it and plucks it here with no, with, with no intent of me going back to that historical context and asking questions that would enlighten me even further. Well, I, I don't believe that. I don't think our Lord is sloppy in the piecing together of his, of his Bible, of what he's given us. This is interconnected with a marvelous design. There's an ever-overreaching storyline. The study will profoundly mature us as students of God's Word. I'm convinced of this. Our, stu- our study of the typology of Scripture will end... million billion years in eternity. How do I know that? The more I know, the more I know I really don't know. The more I study and see how Christ is in my Bible, the more I go, I will never come to full grips with how how Christ-centered this is. But the study is a God-given safeguard for us against the Galatian heresy. Now, this may, at first hearing, you may not feel that apply to you. So let me, let me seek to press this a little bit further. <clears throat> the Galatian heresy was the heresy that they were seeking to go back to their works, to old physical forms, that they did that and then they press that together with the work of Jesus. Now my hope is all of us are Bible-believing, Christ-saved Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus, who are banking on the merits of Jesus. Okay, I hope, My prayer and hope is that's where we're at. But beloved, do you think it's possible that we could actually start to get caught up in our own works-righteous mindset and start actually thinking we're adding to the righteousness of Jesus. And so quickly we can say, not a chance, Dan. I challenge you just to stop and ponder and consider that thought that is there a possibility that after years of walking as a believer, you could actually start to buy into the lie that you've given additions to the righteousness of Jesus. On the merit of Scripture, if you do not have the righteousness of Jesus Christ this morning, you don't have righteousness. He didn't take a pretty good person and make him a better person. He took a bad person. And he took the penalty for the bad person. Because he's a good person, a righteous person, a perfect person. He's washed you. Like Brother John said... Two weeks ago? I don't remember. I don't remember everything you say. Sorry, pal. Um, <clears throat> but no, when, when John said, did you wash yourself? And you know what? A thunderbolt to my heart that morning when, when my brother asked that question, because I thought, is it possible Dan Mason could actually start to buy the lie that I was saved by grace at the beginning, but now I'm starting to pay him back? What an, what an anti- anti-biblical thought. 
You don't have the righteousness of Jesus. You have no righteousness. And so that Galatian heresy was, let's go back to the shadow. Well, I hope anytime you stop and think, I better do this in order to be pleasing to God, and I don't mean in the life of a believer, but I mean in the sense of your salvation. I want you to remember little Benji, who is not little, wrapping his arms around the shadow and falling to the ground and missing the substance. Because, beloved, as soon as we start saying, I need some of my works attached, you're missing the substance. It's the whole point of the book of Galatians where Paul says, then Christ died for nothing if it's merely you doing your righteousness to help him out. Okay, so there's that. Then he asks this question. Cool. What about Joseph? (laughs) And here's where I'm... I hope this doesn't... um, uh, what's the word? I hope this doesn't disappoint you. And I don't mean it to. But my desire is for you to go back to your Bible. And you go find it. But I'm going to give you 12 or 13 that I think pretty, pretty clearly point to the Lord Jesus. So listen to this. I'm just going to read through these uh, with minor comment. <laughs> Number one. Joseph is a shepherd that is betrayed and murdered, quote-unquote, according to his father, by his brethren, who in those events is walking in God's unrevealed plan, which will result in the salvation for the nations. A shepherd that is betrayed and murdered by his brethren, who in those events is walking in God's unrevealed plan, which will result in salvation for the nations. Heard that story somewhere. Joseph is a beloved son of his father. Joseph is sent to his brethren by his father. His brethren have hatred and jealousy towards him. His brethren plot against him. His brothers strip him of his clothes. His brothers sell him for pieces of silver. He suffers, though he's innocent. He's tempted, yet without sin. Potiphar's wife sought to pursue him. He ran with his coat in her hand. After being plotted against, sold, stripped, and abused, he rose to rule and authority over all the nations. He returned to his father, After his death. Now, the reason I keep pointing to death, I know Joseph didn't die. But if you ask Jacob, you bet he died. And so when he returns to his father, it's as good as. Also, Joseph shows a forgiving spirit towards those who hated and abused him. So guys, as I as I've been walking through Genesis with you, and particularly the life of Joseph, week after week after week, I have gone, wow, wow. That I, I, I can't, I can't deny the picture of Jesus in Joseph. And I got to tell you, it has been so hard to not bring that to the pulpit. 
But I did it on purpose because I really genuinely do believe Joseph's a real man, a historical person who plays a role in history, whose family line plays a role in history. And beloved, as you see that, it's important to have that clear in your thinking as a good student of the word. But I just give you these 12. If you want a copy of them, I'll give them to you. But my desire, beloved, is you open the book. You read through Genesis, uh, or read through the life of Joseph again. And knowing this crowd, I imagine each Sunday I'm up here squirming, not going to it. You're going, why isn't he going to it? Why isn't Dan going there? Doesn't he know that that points to Jesus? I do. Um, I do know. But I think it's a vital, vital study for every single believer. And I challenge you. I challenge you to pursue the Word of God with that. So that's what I have for you this morning. And uh, as we come to the Lord's table, I just can't help but draw your attention to the glorious reality. And this is what's so magnificent, is that overarching meta-narrative to think that when Jesus is there with his disciples and he breaks the bread and he, he, he pours the cup and hands it to them, this is a symbol. There's no magic in it, but it's a picture of what our Lord is about to endure as he hands this to his disciples in that circle. And what's so cool about it, from that night and throughout the history of the church, God's people have come together to remember. Why? Because we forgot? No, it's not about that. It's about a holy moment, a solemn arrest of time, where you say, Father, I wish for all things to be just cleared off the desk, to ponder the magnificent salvation that is mine by the Father sending the Son, which the Spirit has applied to us individually. And just pause and take that time to come to his table. I challenge you if you know deep in your heart this morning that you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, and you're going, I'm not. I ask you to not take these elements. Um, I'll go deeper. I plead you wouldn't take them. Not because some preacher doesn't like it. But the Word of God tells us that at, at one point in the Corinthian church, there were people who were dying. There were people who were sick. And the apostle under the inspiration of the Spirit goes so far to actually say this is because you've drinking, you've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So, the level of seriousness, this is not merely a religious practice. <clears throat> I had a slow takeoff this morning. <clears throat> Not just a religious practice, but something that Almighty God takes extremely serious. And so I 